Well, we're going to um, we're going to turn to the Bible now, and it's always a funny Sunday this because you're never quite sure. You know, we we're sort of done with Christmas sermons, right? <laughs> we've we've had enough of those, but not ready to start a new series. So you kind of, what do you what do you say on a Sunday like this? Um, and I was pondering this earlier in the week and um, praying about it, and then. In my morning Bible reading, I read a passage of two chronicles that, I, that, that really challenged me, encouraged me, um, and I thought would be great for us to look at um, together this afternoon. So we're going to read 2 Chronicles 29, which is, um, I'm sure you'll be aware, <laughs> uh, is about Hezekiah. Um, and we're going to read the, the whole chapter. It's quite a long chapter. Um, But it's good for us to hear God's word. It's good for us to hear um, a chunk of God's word. So if you've got it um, in front of you, that'd be great. Otherwise, I'm going to put it on the screen um, and try and click it forwards um, as we go. So let's, let's hear God's word. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord to the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defilement from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He made them object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and to serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Right, here we go. Then these Levites set to work, from the Kohathites, Mahath, son of Amasai, and Joel, son of Azariah, from the Merarites, Kish, son of Abdi, and Azariah, son of Jehalalel, from the Gershonites, Joah, son of Zimar, and Eden, son of Joah, from the descendants of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jeel, from the descendants of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, from the descendants of Heman, which you, if you're of my generation, that's funny, but if you don't know who Heman is... He was a cartoon hero when I was a kid. Anyway, uh, from the descendants of Heman, Jehiel, and Shemiel. From the descendants of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uziel. When they had assembled their fellow Levites and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out the courtyard of the Lord's temple, everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. They began the consecration on the first day of the first month, and by the eighth day of the eighth month, of, of, sorry, the eighth day of the month, they reached the portico of the Lord. 
For eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. Then they went into King Hezekiah and reported, We've purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the table for setting out the consecrated bread with all its articles. We've prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They are now in front of the Lord's altar. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and splashed it against the altar. Next, they slaughtered the rams and splashed their blood against the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and splashed their blood against the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering and to atone for all Israel because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. Where are we up to? Oh, way past that. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way he prescribed by David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the musicians played and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings the assembly bought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 male lambs, all of them for burnt offerings to the Lord. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. The priests, however, were too few to skin all the burnt offerings, so their relatives, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests had been. There were burnt offerings in abundance, together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was re-established. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people, because it was done so quickly. What a moment. I know it's a long reading, but I want us just for a few minutes this afternoon to try and capture something of what happened in Hezekiah's day. And say, what if we got gripped by a same spirit that gripped Hezekiah? And I want to say that what Hezekiah did was a restoration. It was a renewal of relationship with God in Israel. Just to fill you in, um, Hezekiah's dad was Ahaz. He was a terrible, terrible king. So Hezekiah grew up knowing nothing of the Lord, only worship of idols. But you notice on the first month of the first year of his reign, this is what Hezekiah set to do. To open the door of the temple, which had been shut, and to restore the relationship. 
And, and I've been praying, and, and I long that actually as a church family, as we get to the end of 2020, that we might take some time to pause, to reflect on what happened in Hezekiah's day, and pray that we might know a renewal of our relationship with God. It may be, it may be that there are people here and you're absolutely on fire with love for Jesus and you're absolutely, you feel so close to God, you feel like your relationship with God has never been better. That, that may be you. If that is you, this is a sermon you're going to have to store up for another day. Keep it, remember it, because you'll need it one day. But my guess is that for a lot of us, we find ourselves in a slightly different place after 2020. We find ourselves just a little bit distant from God, disengaged. We find ourselves just struggling a little bit in our relationship with God, a little bit like the door is closed. And so what I want to do is I want to take this restoration of the temple and apply it to the restoration of our hearts. The New Testament talks about us being temples of the Holy Spirit. So what would it look like for us to go through the same stages that Hezekiah went through that we might be renewed and refreshed in our worship. And what I'm going to challenge you to do, and you can decide whether you do this or not, but at some point this week, perhaps on New Year's Eve would be a good time, you set aside a chunk of time to go through these five steps that I'm going to show you from 2 Chronicles 29. To make some time to go through these steps and to re-engage And to ask that God, by his spirit, would reignite a passion and a devotion and a love in your heart for God. And if you're watching this, if you're here or you're watching this on the live stream, and you say, well, I've never had a relationship with God. That's, I mean, that's not terrific, but it's terrific that you're here. And it's terrific you're listening, because this could be the moment where for the first time ever you engage with God. For the first time ever you open the door of your heart. And allow God to restore you to the relationship you were made for. I mean, that would just be an an awesome way to start 2021. So this is, whatever stage you find yourself in, this is worth us giving ourselves to um, this afternoon. It's worth us engaging with and and listening to. But why don't you just take a moment now to ask God to do something. Before we dive into the word, let's pause and just say, God, would you help me? Tell him, be honest with him now about your relationship with him and ask him even now to help you to open the door and let him restore you. Let's take a moment of quiet and then we'll dive into what actually we're being told. Heavenly Father, we're here because we want you to speak. We're here because we want to listen. Father, please, by your spirit, would you stir up within us a spirit of renewal, a spirit of restoration, that you might give us eyes to see where our relationship with you has fallen into disrepair 
And we need you to do that restoring work. Lord, please be at work, we pray. Do remarkable things in us and through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, let's get into what actually happened. So the temple doors have been shut. Ahaz, the king before um, Hezekiah, shut the doors. If, you, if you've got a Bible, if you look back to 2 Chronicles 28, Ahaz has been worshipping all sorts of other gods in the temple. But by the time he gets to verse 24, we're told, Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God, cut them in pieces. He shut the door of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. It was shut. Now, I get it. When sometimes when you know, your favorite restaurant shuts down, or you know, all the restaurants are shut down, or your favorite shop is shut because of lockdown, it can feel a bit disheartening. Can't you walk past the doors? And it's like, oh, it's a shame. I can't go and buy my favorite thing today. But for the temple, the one place of worship to be shut, for Jerusalem to be unable to go into the temple and worship God is a devastating thing. The door has been shut. But look what Hezekiah does. The first thing he does, his priority in his kingship, when he comes to be king, verse 3, in the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. That's the sort of king you want. You don't want a king who shuts the door of heaven. You want a king who opens the door. You don't want a king who shuts you off from God. You want a king who leads you into worship of God. What a king. And as he opens the door of the temple, which hasn't been opened for many years, can you picture it? This it's a spectacular building, lined with gold. It's a magnificent building, and yet it's dirty, and it's unused, and there's dust, and there's cobwebs, and there's rubbish all over the place. And so he calls the priests and the Levites together. They're the ones who have responsibility for the temple. And he says to them, listen, our, our fathers, our parents have been unfaithful to God, and this is why we're in such a mess but we're going to renew the covenant. Verse 10, he says, I intend to make a covenant with the Lord. And then he says to these priests, now you don't be negligent in this. You've got work to do. And we're going to follow now the five steps that they go through. And the first one is to take out the trash. The first thing they do when they go into the temple is they look around at all the junk and they take it out. So let's jump down to verse 15. When they assembled their fellow Levites and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it to the Kidron Valley. Do you get the picture? So lying around the temple are all sorts of bits of rubbish that should not be there. Ahaz has been worshipping other gods. He's worshipped the, the, the gods of Damascus. He's worshipped the gods of Aram. And in the very temple, he's been worshipping them. So there's altars and bits of worship to other gods. And as the priests go in, their first job is to take all of that stuff that defiles and makes it unclean and to remove it. To take out the trash and they take it, you see, to the Kidron Valley. 
The Kidron Valley is basically the rubbish dump. That's where you chuck all of the rubbish and the filth. So you take the rubbish and you get rid of it forever. You dispose of it. They carefully, painstakingly move their way through the temple courts, clearing up all that is unclean. Now, we don't have a um, physical temple anymore, but let's just apply this. What would this look like for us if we're going to engage in a renewal of relationship with God? It means we need to take out the trash. It means we need to painstakingly and carefully walk through the courts of our hearts and say, what is there in our hearts that is unclean? As we look back on 2020 and as we think back over this past year, what is there in our lives that's not right? It shouldn't be there. I think we need to be specific. It's not enough just to go, oh yeah, there's some sin. Yes, I need to get rid of sin. Bye, sin. We need to engage with the, the things that have happened. Do you know... Let me give you some specific examples of what I mean, because I, I, I want to help you to think about this. As, as I spent some time thinking about this, I was really shocked to discover that there are still grudges that lurk in my heart from conversations that I've had, or things that people have said, or ways that people have acted towards me, and it still annoys me. They're still there. And when I think of those people who've acted in that way, I find myself really annoyed again. Actually, if we're going to re-engage in worship of God, we need to go through our hearts. We need to take out the trash, right? We need to see that that is, an, that is a defiling sin. That is something which is hindering and spoiling my relationship with God. And therefore, I'm to deal with that. That's the sort of stuff I'm talking about. Or perhaps it's envy. Perhaps there are people that you look at and you are just so envious of them. You find it so hard not to be kind of knotted up with a... Whether it's a sadness or a frustration or a disappointment, whatever it is, but there's an envy and you just look at people and you find it hard to really love them. You find it hard to rejoice when things go well for them because you're fed up of things going well for them. You'd like things to go well for you for once. And perhaps as we walk through the course of our hearts, we find things. But that never happens unless you actually take some time to do it. Unless you actually slow down. It may be that we find sexual immorality is lurking in our hearts. Perhaps for some of us, that's a much more obvious one that we're all too well aware of and all feel all too keenly. But as we look through our hearts, we need to take out the trash. We need to come and say, these things are defiling. These things are not right. I should not just shrug my shoulders and say, oh, well, never mind. It's just the way I am. Or perhaps it's apathy. Perhaps you've just given up caring. I don't know what it is for you, but I want to encourage you to, to take some time to examine your heart. 
One way you could do that is get one of those lists, you know, like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Get one of those lists. Or perhaps the Ten Commandments. Or, or the Beatitude. One of those lists and work your way through it and say, Lord, would you show me where my heart's not right? Difficult to go through the fruit of the Spirit and not find yourself thinking, oh man, there's still stuff here that defiles. And I want to encourage you to take out the trash. I don't just mean uh, to sort of go, oh yes, that's bad, I should stop that. I mean to actively do something. You know when you go to, oh, you see, going to the dump, right, is one of the greatest joys of life. It genuinely is one of my favorite. I, I love going to the dump. I love having a load of junk in my house that I load into my car. I love the feeling. It's just the greatest feeling of liberation when you lob that useless old mattress over the thing into the bin and it's gone forever. And you drive away and you're free from ever. And I never think about that. I don't go back to it. It's gone. And that is how God is encouraging us to deal with stuff, to chuck it into the Kidron Valley, to throw it away. Now, of course, the problem is our sins have a habit of keep coming back, right? That mattress is back. <laughs> how did that get back in my... I thought I dealt with that. And it needs to be continually... But it needs to be active, right? That feeling of chucking the mattress over the side. You need that. So for the person you hold a grudge to, it's not enough for you to just say, oh God, I'm really sorry I hold a grudge. Please help me to stop doing that. You need to get a pen and a piece of paper and write them a letter. You need to do something. The person you're jealous of, you need to pray for them. Do you see that there's, there's a, it's a, it's a positive thing Throwing away of something. This is what, exactly what Paul talks about in Colossians, where he says, put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, greed, idolatry, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put those things to death. You must rid yourselves of all such things as this. Rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. This stuff, you, you chuck it off. Take out the trash. So I want to encourage you, as you seek this restoration of relationship with God, that we deal with trash. But we need to move on. I was going to spend all our time on the rubbish. Because the next thing they do um, is they rearrange the furniture. Are you a, a furniture rearranger? Do you like rearranging furniture? Some people, they love it. It's like they make, nothing makes them happier than to spend a day moving furniture around the room and their, their life has changed forever. I came back the other day, and Linda had moved all the furniture in our lounge completely around. And it was great. We sat on the sofa that night. It was like, it's like a whole new room. Well, that's what these uh, priests do. So listen to what happens. After they've taken out the trash, verse 18, then they went into King Hezekiah and reported... We've purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the table for setting out the consecrated bread. 
with all its articles. We've prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They're now in front of the Lord's altar. They've put everything back where it's supposed to be. You see, you can actually tell a lot about someone by the furniture in their house. If you walk into someone's house, even if you've never met them, you can tell a lot about them by their house, what they have there. In fact, there was a whole TV program, Through the Keyhole. This was the whole premise of that TV program. They went into celebrities' houses, I think with permission, and they looked around, and then the, the, the panel had to guess whose house it was just by looking at the furniture. It wasn't a great TV program. But actually, that's true of the temple. If you went into the temple, you could tell a lot about God by the furniture that he chose to put in his house. It was no accident. God said, this is how my temple is going to be. And the first thing that you see as you go into the house of the Lord, into the courtroom, is a massive altar. A huge bronze altar upon which burnt offerings were to be burnt in in worship of God and to atone for sin. And then as you went through, uh, and as you... um, Went past the altar, you came to a massive great wash basin, like a a huge great sea, it's called. It was on the back of 12 oxen. And so as you were offered your offerings, you then came to the sea, and that's the place of washing. All of this mirrors Israel's story, right? Rescued out of Egypt by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, then through the Red Sea, through the waters of the Red Sea, all of it about how you access God. You come through offering, through the place of washing, And then you go into the holy place. And in the holy place, there is a table with bread on it. The bread of the presence. The table of presence. And then over here, there's a lampstand. And very much this sense that the temple is like a mini garden of Eden. You're being invited back into relationship with God. And then you came to another altar, a smaller altar, where incense was offered and the smoke of the incense went up. And it's as if the the holy place rests on top of the outer court. So the sacrifice is offered on the altar, the bronze altar. The smoke from there, it's as if that then on the gold altar of incense turns into this beautiful, sweet-smelling aroma before God as it then enters the most holy place where God dwells, where the cherubim are. But you see, King Ahaz, he'd shoved all the furniture around. He'd done a linda on the temple. He said, actually, I don't really like this great big bronze altar here. It's in the way. I'm going to move that just over to the side. And he moved it slightly to the north. And then he put another altar on his own altar. I prefer this one. And so they'd moved all the stuff around. And what the priests do in Hezekiah's day is they put the furniture back where it's supposed to be. That's how it works. So here's my question. You might say, well, what on earth has this got to do with us? I get the taking out the trash. Okay, here's the question then. What does the heart furniture, what is your heart furniture tell you about your priorities, and your life. I'm talking about the structures, the patterns of life. I'm not talking about the physical home you live in, although I think that has some implications for it too. But what about your heart? 
What would someone assume as they look at your life is most important? Remember, when he went into the temple, there was just no doubt about what was most important. What about as they look at your life, as they look at your heart? What would they assume is the most important thing? What takes center stage? What's on the altar? What's in the middle? Let me just say um, a couple of practical things, just trying to pick up on some of this stuff. Um, for example, when you think about the lampstand in the, in the holy place, which was giving light, light to the people through the day and through the night, constantly burning. Ahaz had turned the lamp off, right? Ahaz had stopped putting oil in the lamp. And so the light had gone. Hezekiah relights the lamp. So here's the question. What is it that lights up your life? What is the light of your life? What is it that gives you life? What is it that gives you meaning? What is it that gives you purpose? What is it that guides you and gives you understanding? How much of that is God and his word? And how much of it is the media that we often feast on and that often becomes our light. I was really challenged again this week, and I'm challenged about this so often, and I need to keep working on this. What's the first thing you look at in the morning? Is it your phone, or is it the Bible? Which one comes first? And what does that say? What does that piece of furniture in your life, your phone, what does it say about your relationship with God and your priorities? You see, perhaps it's time for us to rearrange the furniture. Perhaps it's time for us to rearrange our relationship with our phones. This might not be an issue for you, but my guess is it's an issue for lots of us. That our phones occupy far too important a place in our lives. They take far too much of our time and our attention. And as it were, we have shoved the altar of God, the worship of God, we've shoved that to the side and we've replaced it with our phones, which we think are the thing that give us light into our world. And maybe it's time for us to, re, to rethink our relationship with our phone. And some people, you know, you might say, but I, I need my phone. Um, to, to wake me up in the morning. It's my alarm. Well, get an alarm clock. They're not really, they're not expensive. I mean, to be honest, I'll buy you an alarm clock if that would help. And I say this as much to me as to you, because this, because Linda and I were really challenged about this a, a couple of years ago, and we went through a phase of doing this, and we got back into bad habits, and we need to re-engage this again. My phone should live by the front door. My phone, um, Andy Crouch, who's a great writer on this stuff, he has a saying that says, your phone should go to bed before you do and wake up after you do. That's a good line. Put your phone to bed before you go to bed and get up before you get your phone up. It's part of the rearranging the furniture of our lives. So I want to encourage you to, to think about that. And the other thing I want to encourage you to think about is meals. The furniture of meals in your life. Because remember, in the temple, there was the, there was the lampstand, but there was also the table with the bread of presence. 
You see, God wanted his people, one of the things that God wanted his people to know was he was the God who ate with them. He was the God who was with them, who gave them food, who fed them, who loved to eat with his people, to enjoy communion with his people. The table, the dining table, was key in God's house. So I'd encourage you to think, what, what place do meals have in your life? What, what's your attitude in relationship to meals? I think for many of us, again, it's, it's convenience. It's like, grab breakfast, grab lunch, grab some food, grab some dinner. And actually, I want to encourage us perhaps to think about saying, no, maybe we could use our meal times differently. Not all of them. Sometimes you have to grab some food. But supposing you said, I'm going to have a meal where I'm going, even if, it's, even if you're on your own and you say, I'm going to have a meal, I'm going to enjoy and I'm going to engage with God, I'm going to enjoy a meal with God. That's what our God is like. He eats with us. The bread of his presence. And perhaps for 2021, we need to slow down. This is the whole premise behind uh, 121. That actually we use some of our meal times to engage with one another and to discuss God and to love God. We, uh, Linda and I read a book recently about, about this stuff and this guy was arguing that a table should be a key feature in your home as a, as a representation of this. We were like, well, it's nice if you don't live in central London. <laughs> Great, yeah, let's get a really big... He was like, you should have a table that fits 12 people around it. I'm like, we haven't got a flat that fits 12 people in it. But the principle, though, right? The principle that says our eating together is good and engaging with God and saying grace and loving God and enjoying God through the food. There's loads of other stuff you could do with furniture. Oh, man, we've totally gone completely out of time. We're going to speed up very much now. Um, the third thing um, is splash the blood. That's the third thing. If you want to um, enjoy a renewed relationship with God, rearrange the furniture, then splash the blood. This was all this bit um, where they, once they finished purifying it and then rearranging the furniture, um, they bring all these animals and then they kill them and they splash blood against the altar and then they splash blood at the other blood and they splash some more blood. There's a lot of blood splashing. And all of it, we're told in verse 24, was to atone for the sins of Israel. You see, you could be forgiven for at this point thinking, this is all like a load of stuff I've got to do. I've got to kind of find all this sin in my life and feel guilty about that and get rid of that. And then I've got to do all this stuff to worship God. No, you've got to keep remembering that the basis of our relationship with God is blood. It's all on the basis of blood. You might say, what a weird thing to have a relationship on the basis of. Yes. But this is the way it works. Atonement is required because all of us by nature have pushed God's furniture out of our lives and placed ourselves at the center. And it's so serious that death is required. And so God says, I'll make a way to to make atonement. An animal will die so that you may go free. And so the blood that was splashed is a reminder that 
Life has been poured out because therefore atonement has been made. Therefore you are forgiven. And so we're told that they laid the hands on the heads of these animals. They identified with these animals and their sin was transferred to these animals. And then the animals died as their substitute in their place. And so although to our 21st century ears it sounds gruesome, splashing blood everywhere, actually for the people of God, it was their confidence that relationship with God has been restored. And of course, we don't now have to splash the blood of animals and goats because we have better blood. Because the perfect Lamb of God has come. His blood has been poured out to make atonement for our sin, to make atonement for your sin. And the problem with it being a once-for-all activity is that we can take it for granted. You see, these guys had to do this every year, right? More blood. Reminder, every year. This is what it needs to make atonement. But because Jesus has done it once for all, because his blood is so infinitely precious and spectacularly powerful, because Jesus' blood has made atonement completely and forever for our sin, we can take that for granted. And so if we're going to enjoy a restored relationship with God, we need to remember the splashed blood of Jesus. We need to engage and remember that his blood makes atonement. So splash the blood. And then fourthly, oops. Oh, now we've gone all the way to there. Fourthly, turn up the music. In a restored relationship with God, you turn up the music. That's what he does next. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord. This is verse 25. With cymbals, harps, lyres, in the way prescribed by David and Gath. And uh, so they're all there. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priest with their trumpets. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering in the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and instruments. Do you see there's music? There's not been music in the temple for years because the doors have been shut. But once you open the doors of the temple and you purify the temple and you rearrange the furniture and you splash the blood, now there's a cause for singing. Now you open your mouth and you sing. You turn up the music. And we should never underestimate the importance and the place of music in our worship of God. It's not just a nice thing we do. The reason that it grieves us not to be able to sing is because singing is what we're created to do. Singing is how we engage in a relationship with our God. And to not be able to sing is not a shame. It's devastating. Therefore, I want to encourage you to find other ways to turn up the music. To turn up the music of your hearts. Perhaps to turn up the music at home, to put on music and to sing. Sing when you can. But it's not just about the physical singing. It's about the music of our hearts. Asking that God would cause our hearts to sing this song. To sing joyfully. And the fifth thing that happens is that as they sing... Verse 31, 
Then Hezekiah said, You've now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. All whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. And then they bring so many offerings that there aren't enough priests to deal with it all. But see, it's willing because it's an overflow. They're not being told, they're not, they're not kind of being forced to do it. They willingly unleash their hearts in generosity and, and, and service. And this is the pattern, right? This is what we're about. This is how it works. As we engage and restore, as we open the door of our hearts again, as we engage in a restored relationship with God, we will then unleash our hearts and say, Lord, what would you have me do in 2021? What would God want to do with you this coming year? What does God have for you? How does God want you to serve him? Are you, excited? Are you a little bit excited about what God might do with you this year? Supposing God does stuff with you that you could never have dreamed because you willingly opened your heart to him. Yes, you could keep your heart closed and you could do your little plans and you may say, yeah, but I've got a load of things planned for 2021. Yeah, but you probably had plans for 2020 and that didn't go so well. So why not open your hearts and say to God, here am I, use me. I want to be used by you. I want you to take my gift, take my life, take everything and I want you to use me. What a difference we could make as a church. If we were a group of people who had that passion about us. So there's an idea for how you could use New Year's Eve. There's a lot of New Year's Eve. It takes a long time to get to midnight. So you've got plenty of time. But I want to encourage you to work through these five steps. I'm going to put these things in 121 so you can look at them, you can go through them, you could reflect on them. But take some time to do this. Take out the trash, rearrange the furniture, splash the blood, turn up the music, unleash your heart. That's what Hezekiah did in Israel's day. But Hezekiah wasn't the great king. Actually, what we really needed was Jesus, the greater king, who fully opens the door, who splashes his own blood so that we might know him. So why don't we bow our heads? Let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll respond. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you're a God who's worthy of our worship. And we're so sorry when we examine our hearts and we see that our hearts have become so disordered. We're sorry when other things take the place to, and take priority in our lives. Lord, we pray this new year that we wouldn't just enter another year with some good intentions, but that we might have a Hezekiah moment, that we might have a moment where the Lord Jesus restores our worship and restores our relationship with you in a deeper, more wonderful way than ever. And we pray that for every single one of us in our church family, that 2021 would be a year where our the doors of our hearts are flung open wide so that we might worship you. Lord, we really need you uh, and we ask for your power in Jesus' name. Amen.